This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Good evening. My name is Jeff Browning, and I'm the uh, campus minister of uh, United Campus Christian Ministry. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to this evening of a conversation on the heart of Christianity and the future of the church. Uh, I'd like to thank the uh, Office of Religious Life for their encouragement and support of this event. Uh, This event would not happen without their uh, encouragement and support. And I'd also like to uh, thank the co-sponsoring groups. Uh, This event is really a collaboration of uh, many members of the uh, Stanford Associated Religions Organization. Uh, We have uh, the support of uh, evangelical, Pentecostal, and Catholic communities, as well as uh, mainline Protestant communities and even one interfaith group. So uh, we're very grateful for their collaboration and that we can all participate in this event together. A few related items uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, One is that we will have uh, cards available for you to write down questions so that you can pass them forward for our, uh, the time when we are going to open up the discussion for questions from the audience. Uh, if you would like to have a card to ask, write down a question on, please raise your hand and the ushers will get you a card. And then we will collect those uh, a little further through the program and uh, sort through them to get the, uh, the best questions to our speakers. Also, after uh, this event, the bookstore will be selling copies of the books of both of our speakers uh, and uh, under the arches out there. And if you wish to have your book signed, we will, uh, uh, the authors will be available in the round room around to my left here, your right, uh, for book signing. So if you wanted to purchase a book and bring it around to the round room, you're welcome to do that. Uh, after the uh, after the event, uh, this event is also going to be recorded and will be available on Stanford iTunes. Uh, and I also want to thank the Catholic community for providing the refreshments, chocolate and cookies that we are going to have in the patio, just to the uh, west here of the um, of the sanctuary after the event. So you're welcome to join us for chocolate and cookies outside in the patio. Uh, And if you want to discuss any of the uh, subjects uh, that are raised in this discussion tonight, uh, want to be part of an ongoing discussion group, there are going to be discussion groups that are going to be forming, including one taking place right after the event uh, over in the the, uh, old union building this evening. So uh, there will be some opportunities for that, and we will be handing out flyers that show you when those opportunities are available. And finally, at the end of our event at 8 o'clock this evening, we are requesting that you leave the church uh, in silence. And that gives us an opportunity to listen to the choral music of Compline. Compline is a regular uh, service opportunity that they offer here at the church And uh, as we leave in silence, we will be uh, able to listen to the wonderful choral music that is offered by our Compline Choir this this evening 
and you're invited to come back uh, a little later and enjoy the entire Compline service at 8.45. Our moderator this evening is Eric Osborne. Eric is a second-year law student here at Stanford. Uh, he is a graduate of Amherst College with a BA in History and in French. He also has a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. Eric is currently an inquirer for ministry under the care of the Presbyterian Church. At Princeton, Eric studied a broad array of theological viewpoints. He has worked in several churches around the world, including time spent studying and working in Cape Town under the moderator of the Presbyterian Church of South Africa. Eric has regularly attended Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Episcopalian, Missionary Alliance, and AMZ Zion churches. Our ecumenical steering committee chose Eric as tonight's moderator because we believe that he has a broad theological background and activities inside and outside the church that allow him to engage our speakers in a way that will help our speakers to reveal what they share in common as well as what distinguishes them. So please welcome with me our moderator, Eric Osborne. Good evening. The pastor and the professor. This was a title that our steering committee considered as we were trying to name this event. And we considered this title because we have two gentlemen with very different backgrounds different theological viewpoints and different professions within the church. Whenever you have two people with such different backgrounds, there's always a chance that they'll kind of speak past each other. But we're hopeful tonight that that will not be the case. Indeed, our committee truly believes that we have a very profound topic before us and a chance for great depth this evening. Before we begin, I want to say a few words about tonight's conversation. Tonight we have two gifted individuals with very different views of Jesus yet both have the best interests of Christians and the church at heart. In our conversation, we will try to understand the different views that Dr. Borg and Pastor Ortberg have, but we will not be having a traditional debate. We won't be putting anyone on the spot. There will be no gotcha questions, though there may be some difficult and challenging questions. Rather, our intention this evening is to have a frank and fair discussion dealing with serious and controversial issues in a Christian way. Ultimately, we hope that this conversation will help all of you better understand what it means to be a Christian in contemporary society and how the gospel may best be communicated in a modern age. While we hope that you will find tonight intellectually fascinating, we also hope and pray that tonight may help you better understand the person of Jesus. In short, no matter what your religious background, we hope that tonight may bring new insights and help each of you in your walk with God and with each other. Our first speaker tonight is Marcus Borg. Marcus Borg is the Hundir Distinguished Professor of Religion and Culture at Oregon State University. He is a member of the Jesus Seminar, the Historical Jesus Section of the Society of Biblical Literature, and the Anglican Association of Biblical Scholars. He is a well-known lecturer, columnist, teacher, and scholar. Dr. Borg studied at Concordia College, Union Theological Seminary in New York, and Oxford University, where he earned a doctorate of philosophy. Dr. Borg has written over 20 books, including Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, The God We Never Knew, 
and the heart of Christianity. John Ortberg is the senior pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. Prior to coming to Menlo Park, he was a teaching pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, a very well-known megachurch outside of Chicago. Reverend Ortberg graduated from Wheaton College and Fuller Theological Seminary. At Fuller, in addition to a Master of Divinity, Reverend Ortberg earned a PhD in clinical psychology. He remains involved with Fuller Seminary today, serving as an adjunct professor in the homiletics department and serving on the board of trustees. Reverend Ortberg has written two books, including If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat, and The Life You've Always Wanted, Spiritual Growth for Ordinary People. He has contributed essays, sermons, devotions, and more to countless other publications. Let's give a warm welcome to our guest speakers this evening. we asked our speakers to focus on two questions. Those questions were, who was the historical Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ today? And how did you come to hold this view? The second question is, how do you envision the future of the church? So we posed these two questions to our speakers and told them they have 15 minutes for opening statements this evening. Dr. Borg has agreed to go first. Some of you have heard me before, I can tell. Okay. Um, let me begin by making sure that my voice sounds all right. I can tell it's being amplified. I have to admit I can't see you all that well, so I'm not going to ask if any of you have any problem hearing me, because if you put up a hand, I wouldn't be able to see you. So let me just trust that everything is okay. I want to begin, first of all, with a thank you. And I know there are many people to thank for this evening, but I want to mention in particular Jeff Browning, whom you heard a few minutes ago, who was responsible for inviting me, and also Eric Osborne, who has just introduced us and who will moderate the evening, and John Ortberg as well for agreeing to be part of this. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity for this kind of dialogue between two parts of the church, if you will, that sometimes do not talk to each other all that much. In my presentation, <clears throat> I'm going to speak primarily about the future of the church as I see it. And if I have time, I will say something about Jesus. And my reason for doing that is that when this was first suggested to us, the topic was the future of the church, so I thought about that. And I can always uh, talk about Jesus at great length whenever called upon. So let me speak primarily in my opening statement about the future of the church as I see it. And let me add immediately that I'm going to be speaking about the future of what are commonly called the mainline denominations, perhaps we should say old mainline now, because they are no longer the majority form of Christianity in this country. But the reason I choose to speak about the future of the mainline church is because that's the part of the church that I know firsthand. 
So, my basic statement about something that is happening now that I think is also the future of mainline denominations. Namely, a new form of Christianity is emerging within all of the mainline denominations. Now, it's not that all mainline Christians embrace this new form of Christianity, but it is a strong voice within all of the denominations, and it's because of that that many of the mainline denominations today are also marked by conflict. And this new form of Christianity is quite different from what we might call the common Christianity of a generation or two ago. And by common Christianity, I mean nothing negative or pejorative. I mean simply the kind of Christianity that most Christians, Catholic as well as Protestant, took for granted, let's say, as recently as 40 or 50 years ago in this country. And I speak of this new form of Christianity as a new form, even as I think it is also a recovery of something deeply traditional. And so my preference would be to speak of it as neo-traditional Christianity, though I don't expect that phrase to catch on. <clears throat> and in my talk tonight, I'm going to speak about three of the primary features of what I see as the future of mainline denominations, this new form of Christianity. In most compact form, if I were sending a telegram, do telegrams still exist? I can't imagine that they do. But <clears throat> in exceedingly concise form, it's about this life, it's intentional, and it's progressive. Let me now unpack each of those statements. It's about this life more than the next life about this life more than the afterlife. Now, this is quite different from the form of Christianity with which I grew up. And I grew up in a mainline denomination, a mainline congregation. There was nothing weird or sectarian about us. But if you had asked me at the end of childhood, say when I was age 10 or 12, or better yet, if you had been able to convince me at age 10 or 12 that there was no afterlife, I would have had no idea why I should be a Christian. The afterlife, if you will, was the primary product that the Christian gospel had to offer and the primary sanction for taking Christianity seriously. In the same fashion, if you had asked me at the end of childhood, what is the gospel? By the way, that's a great question to ask yourself right now. I don't mean I'm going to put you in small groups, okay? But, you know, if you had to respond to that question in a sentence or so, what is the gospel, the heart of the Christian message? Again, I think at the end of childhood, my response would have been something like this. 
The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be forgiven and go to heaven. And notice how central the notion of the afterlife is in that short statement of what the gospel is, as well as the role played by sin and forgiveness in that short statement. My answer to the question, what is the gospel now, would be quite different. And I think a number of different and very complementary answers are possible. One way I would have of expressing it is the way Jesus expressed it. The gospel is the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, I'm convinced, is both deeply personal. It's about living our lives under the lordship of God as known in Jesus. And it's also political. The kingdom of God is what life would be like on earth if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. Or I would be very happy to, happy to use one of Paul's shorthand phrases for the Christian, Christian message. It is about life in Christ. And Paul uses that short phrase, in Christ, over 160 times in his letters as a summation of what this is about. And what is life in Christ about? It is about personal transformation through dying and rising with Christ and being born into a new way of life that is profoundly egalitarian. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. In short, being Christian is about transformation in this life. There's no denial of an afterlife in that statement, but simply an emphasis that this, or that Christianity as I see it, is primarily about what happens this side of death, and we leave what happens beyond death up to God. Secondly, this new form of Christianity is intentional rather than conventional in both motive and emphasis. I begin with motive. Until recently, in most parts of this country, there was a conventional expectation, a cultural expectation, that everybody would be part of a church. If I think of the small town in which I grew up in my elementary school class of about 30 kids, every one of them, if you had asked them, what are you, denominationally, would have had an answer. I don't think of one of them would have said, oh, my folks don't care for that stuff. And that's because of this conventional expectation. And so people not too long ago were Christian for reasons of convention. I don't mean that it was only about convention. Some of them became intentional Christians. But that expectation, that conventional expectation, disappeared about 40 years ago in most parts of this country. And this means that increasingly, people even today, and especially in the church of the future, 
will be there for intentional reasons. They'll be there with intentionality, not because it's the expected thing to do. And this also leads to a different kind of emphasis in this new form of Christianity. Namely, intentionality intrinsically involves taking spiritual practices seriously, recovering the great traditions of prayer and other forms of practice. And the purpose of these practices is transformation. Then my third statement. This emerging form of Christianity is progressive theologically and socially. Theologically and very concisely, it understands much of biblical and theological language metaphorically or symbolically, terms which I'm happy to use basically interchangeably. And thus, the problems created by biblical literalism simply disappear. Secondly, it sees no fundamental conflict between Christianity and science, or religion and science more generally, and other forms of modern knowledge, and affirms a lot of complementarity. Thirdly, it affirms religious pluralism, not just out of political correctness or tolerance, but out of a deep connection, or conviction that the creator of the whole universe has, of course, been known in all of the enduring religions in the world, of the world. And by enduring, I mean the ones that have stood the test of time. And it finds it very difficult to believe that the creator of the whole universe would choose to be known in only one religious tradition, which just fortunately happens to be our own. Socially, it moves toward inclusiveness. To cite the most obvious examples from recent decades about the role of women in the church, Mainline denominations, it's very recent, only about 40 years ago began ordaining women. And of course, that movement toward inclusiveness in our own time is primarily about the status of gay and lesbian people within the church and Christianity. And politically, this new form of Christianity tends to be progressive it involves a recovery of the political meaning of the Bible. The Bible is, of course, a religious document, but it is also pervasively political from beginning to end, from the story of the Exodus through the prophets to Jesus' execution by the empire of his time to Paul, to the book of Revelation. In short, this new form of Christianity, reduced to its simplest form, would affirm being Christian is about loving God, as known decisively in Jesus, and it's about loving what God loves. And what does God love? The answer is given to us by the opening chapter of Genesis, 
when after each day of creation there is the refrain, and God saw that it was good, and at the end, and God saw that it was very good, and the answer is also given by that most familiar verse of the New Testament, John 3:16, for God so loved the world, not just me, not just you and me, not just Christians, not just believers, not even just human beings, but the whole of creation. And thus, to repeat myself, being Christian is about loving God as known decisively in Jesus and loving what God loves the world, and that means seeking to change the world in the direction of the dream of God. Thank you very much. Well, I would like to thank Stanford uh, for hosting this event, and um, Jeff and Eric, and particularly Marcus Borg. Um, it is an honor to be here, just kind of a true confession uh, I am not an academician, and I am painfully aware of that. There were actually several people who uh, were going to kind of stand in my stead, and none of whom were able to make it. So you all are stuck with me. Um, uh, but I speak as a practitioner, and um, so I'd like to share thoughts from that perspective. Um, starting with this, uh, one of the things that Marcus writes about, about the human condition, is that there is this sense, this kind of universal hunger for something more. There is something inside of us that inclines us to believe, or at least to want to believe, that there is more than just what we can see or taste or touch or hear. There's that statement in the Scriptures that says God has placed eternity inside of us. And um, I felt this, uh, this last year, I have a niece who got married, and at her wedding, they had uh, a dance where all the couples on the dance floor were married, and they had to leave the dance floor one at a time, Courtney and her brand-new bridegroom, and, and then my wife and I, who've been married 25 years, left, and finally there was one couple left on the dance floor, and they had been married 53 years, and that was my mom and my dad. And then the guy who was emceeing the ceremony um, said to Courtney and Patrick, take a good look at that couple on that dance floor, because in 53 years, that's supposed to be you. And I thought about how for my parents, 53 years just went like that, and how that day will come in 53 years. And when that day comes, my father will be gone, and my mother will be gone, and my wife will be gone. I'll be 104 years old. <laughs> and no, I don't think I'll be around by then. And uh, the generations come and the generations go, and Isaiah puts it like this, all flesh is as the grass. And when we think about grass that springs up in one day and then is gone, it doesn't strike despair in us because grass does not have the awareness of its mortality, but human beings do. We have this sense 
we have this hunger that there be something more. I believe Jesus spoke with unique authority to that human hunger, to that human desire, that there would be something more. And I think that he spoke to that and speaks to that, um, not just in terms of the future. I was very struck as you were talking about your understanding of the gospel when you were growing up. And I think one of the people that most helps me has most helped me to understand the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, was a guy named Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher at USC, and has talked about, as many, many other folks have, that Jesus' fundamental message was um, that the kingdom of God, the presence of God, has now become available to human beings. And when I grew up in the church that I grew up, although it was a good church in many ways, I would say the general idea of the gospel was that the gospel are the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Now, we would never use precisely that language, but if you were to ask a lot of people, they would have some kind of response like that, that the gospel is the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Without giving very much adult thought about what is the nature of heaven, what kind of community might it be, and what kind of person would you need to be to actually want to be in that community. And so when you come to studying what Jesus says in the Gospels, the primary message is the time has come, the synoptics put it, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then this good news becomes available to anybody who wants to access this good news. Um, now, I do believe that this good news is good both for this world, for this life, and for the world that is to come. And I also believe that Jesus was a unique authority about the nature of this good news. Because he was interested in having people who would follow him. He surveyed the ways that other people lived. He looked at life as it was lived in his world. And his invitation to people quite consistently was, would you follow me? Would you come and be one of my followers? So Jesus presented this in a, um, in a way that was designed to elicit people to respond and become disciples and become followers. And I believe that the church, uh, as it occurred when it began and as it exists in our day, is to be a community through which the redemptive purpose, the redemptive plan of God begins to be experienced through the power of God in that little community. Dallas Willard puts it like this, God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive uh, group of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. God's aim in human history is the creation of a community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. When you look at what would give rise to the church, 
I think what makes the most sense is to say that Jesus, Jesus lived a life and taught in such a way that nobody had ever heard this kind of teaching before, that nobody had ever seen this kind of life before. And people were drawn to that, as people are drawn to it still. And so his followers learned to trust him. And it wasn't just to trust that he had made an arrangement to get them into heaven after they died. It was to trust that he knew what he was talking about, that he was right. And people discovered that as they did that, as they followed him, as they trusted him, that he knew what he was saying. And eventually that moved them to the place where they actually trusted him, uh, not just with their lives on this earth, but with their destinies forever. And that then Jesus was crucified on a cross, and that those followers really did come to believe that death could not stop him, that he actually was resurrected, and they came to believe that because it actually did happen. And so they formed this new community, and that there had never been a community like this community before. And it was to be a place where the practices that Jesus himself observed could be engaged in by human beings who would experience the presence and the hope of God in the midst of this community. And that that is why it has gone on now for the last 2,000 years. And that it is that community that gathers around the presence of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus that is the hope of the world. Just want to remind you that ushers will be coming around with cards to take questions from the audience. For the next half hour or so, the three of us will be having a conversation uh, to reflect on some of the statements they've given us. But we will collect questions from the audience until about 7.40 or so. So if a question comes to mind as you ponder the opening statements or as you hear our discussion, please feel free to raise your hand and draw an usher's attention. Thank you, gentlemen, both for um, very thought-provoking statements to begin. I want to ask a question that I think will, first of all, help set the tone of this conversation. And that question is, how do we even have conversations like this? Um, and so to, to premise that, one of the first books I read in seminary was by a man named Alan Jacobs, who teaches at Wheaton College, and it was called A Theology of Reading. And Dr. Jacobs argued that in conversations, in reading, it was imperative for Christians to treat their interlocutors the same way they would treat their fellow Christians, their fellow friends. In other words, to give the other person the, the benefit of the doubt, if you will, to present their argument in the fairest and most charitable way, to not impute negative intentions. Unfortunately, the very fact that we're having this discussion is because, in part, so many churches, particularly mainline denominations, of which you both are a part, are divided. And even beyond just the mainline denominations, Christians have become, in some ways, divided from non-Christians in this country and throughout the world. So my first question to you is, how is it that we can begin to have conversations like this in a Christ-centered way? Hmm. What, either one of us to go first? <laughs> Whoever wants. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, 
come from an evangelical tradition. That's the identity that I am a part of. And um, evangelicals, unfortunately, often are much better at speaking than listening. And I think part of what's needed uh, from the very beginning is the notion that Jesus is the kind of person who would want us to follow the truth wherever it leads. And um, sometimes people are afraid of conversation or afraid to read certain kind of books or afraid to engage in certain kinds of discussions. And it always seems to me that underneath that is a kind of nervousness where folks are wondering, um, is what I believe really, really true? And I'm afraid to examine it honestly and courageously because I'm afraid if I do, it will turn out not to be true. And I think there's danger in that because what it means is I don't believe it way, way, way down deep inside. And then I think there's a book that Rich Mao wrote a number of years ago about worldviews. And um, his inspiration was when he was in a mall and he heard a Christmas song by Perry Como one time, a little town of Bethlehem. And it says this about Jesus, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. And so he wrote a book and it was about different worldviews. But instead of starting with where as an evangelical does he differ? with all of these worldviews. He started with, what do these different worldviews, even though they're saying something else than what he might ultimately want to say in certain respects, what's the common ground that they could both affirm? Um, you know, f for instance, I think one of the chapters was on New Age thought. And he said one of, the, one of the shared understandings of New Age thought and Christianity is that there is something more, that, that reality consists of more than just what we can see or hear or think uh, see or hear or touch. And um, so I think to go on and talk about now where are the differences, that's important. It's very important to do it in a way that is respectful and um, that's humble. Um, but also not to be so quick to want to go to the differences that we don't recognize what are the commonalities that can be really, really important. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot to add to that. I agree with that um, basically completely. Um, let me mention one thing that does make conversation difficult. I don't mean with you or your church. I don't know anything about your church or, or about you other than what I've just heard. So this is not... <laughs> My mother could fill you in. <clears throat> yeah, so this is not about you. But uh, whenever a, a group has a dogmatic certainty about a number of things, whenever it absolutizes uh, particular statements and so forth, it does make genuine conversation and dialogue more difficult, maybe even very difficult. And the second comment I want to make is that I have been involved in some intra-Christian dialogues where there's been enough time for the different kinds of Christians involved in these dialogues to hear each other's spiritual journey stories and so forth so that a relationship of trust and some familiarity has grown up. And then there comes a point, I don't mean in a single evening, but over uh, several sessions, where <clears throat> the groups are encouraged to ask each other, what are you most curious about? in terms of how we see things. So that again, it becomes uh, an attempt honestly to recognize differences, but within a framework of some intimacy and, and trust. Yeah. And then I think 
rather than it turning into, how can you think that way? It becomes, aha, I understand you see things that way. It doesn't mean agreement, but it creates the possibility of, of genuine understanding, even though disagreement might remain. Thank you. In order to flesh out a bit um, your different views a little more clearly, I'm going to read a scriptural passage that I'm sure you both are aware of and ask you to reflect on it. And this comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. Also Paul. <laughs> now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is a very famous passage of scripture and it comes from a book that even when scholars debate what, what is actually authentically Paul and what's not, most people agree that 1 Corinthians was authentically Paul and was written in the early 50s. So we have something here that can be pretty certainly <clears throat> dated to within 20 years of Christ's death and seems to have a relatively concrete affirmation of the resurrection. So the question is first to Dr. Borg mm -hmm. and with the idea of metaphor that you've thrown forth and mm -hmm. the idea of understanding scripture symbolically, the question would be, first of all, how do you envision the resurrection, both of Jesus and of human beings today? And related to that, how is that understanding of the resurrection uh, guided by your understanding of scripture? So in other words, I want to try and use this passage to understand your perspectives for both of you, both in terms of the actual happenstance, at least of this one issue in the Bible, and also for how you interpret at least this one part of scripture. Mm -hmm. Briefly. I know. <laughs> we don't have enough time, do we? Okay. I'll take your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. A sentence or two about the Bible. So you have to listen up, okay? I see the Bible as a human product, the product of two ancient communities. Ancient Israel is, or the Old Testament is the product of ancient Israel, the New Testament the product of the early Christian movement. And I see the Bible as Christian sacred scripture. <clears throat> but it is sacred scripture not because of its origin in God as if it has a divine guarantee because it comes from God as no other book does, but rather it is sacred scripture for us because our spiritual ancestors in these communities declared it to be sacred. Now to the question about the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, I agree completely with Paul's statement. Then I want to go on to say that it's in that very same chapter that Paul, beginning in verses 33 and following, addresses the question, with what kind of body are the dead raised? And as that unfolds, it's clear that Paul is affirming that the risen body is a spiritual body, not a physical body, not a body of flesh and blood. Now, what's a spiritual body? I have no clue. 
And I don't think Paul does either because he uses these metaphors of radical difference to talk about it. That the relationship between the spiritual body and the physical body is like the relationship between the full-grown plant, that's the spiritual body, and the seed which is cast into the ground, which is the physical body. To draw out the significance of that, I don't think Paul's understanding requires that we think of the physical body of Jesus having been raised from the tomb so that the tomb was empty. I'm very happy understanding the story of the empty tomb as a metaphor of the resurrection. I'm not going to insist that it wasn't empty. I think that's a very sterile debate. I think the central meaning of the resurrection is you won't find Jesus in the land of the dead. Or to put that positively, the central meaning of Easter is twofold in the New Testament. Jesus is a figure of the present and not simply of the past. He continues to be known and experienced. I'm utterly convinced that some of Jesus' followers had vivid experiences of him after his death. I don't imagine for a moment that you could have photographed the risen Christ, though, if you had been there. And the second meaning of Easter, as I understand it, is not just Jesus lives, but Jesus is Lord. God has vindicated Jesus, made him both Lord and Christ, and therefore God has said no to the powers that crucified him. Now, Easter has more than a political meaning, but it does have a political meaning. Empire, with the collaboration of religious authorities, killed Jesus. God has said yes to Jesus, vindicated him, made him both Lord and Christ. And if that's not true, then the story of Jesus is ultimately simply a very tragic story of another great man killed by the powers of this world. Um, I think one of the most helpful people I have read on the resurrection is Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. And uh, he writes how often when people think of Easter, they think that what it means is life after death, but it's about more than that, that when Israel was looking forward to the resurrection, they were looking forward to um, God setting things right. It, it wasn't just more life, it was life being set right by God. What they weren't looking for was for one person to be resurrected ahead of the final day. And that what happened on Easter was that <clears throat> Jesus was resurrected and nobody was looking for that and the surprise of that and the power of that is what gave birth to the hope of the new community. And um, so when Paul writes those words, I, I think about, I was at another college on the East Coast, kind of like Stanford, almost as good as Stanford. And um, <laughs> there was a, a woman, a student there at an university chapter, and, and she read that passage and she was trying to explain the centrality of the resurrection. And uh, it was this combination of biblical and collegial language. And she finally said, basically what Paul is saying is, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we're hosed. Um, <laughs> she, uh, 
I think that uh, when the resurrection took place, uh, that the tomb was empty and that it was the fact that they believed that Jesus himself had actually been resurrected, that he was now alive in a way that, of course, we have to understand um, analogically because it involves a spiritual reality that we don't have the precise word for, but in a way that was both more real and more personal than life had ever been known before. Um, that it was that hope, the hope of a personal resurrection, which includes not just that death doesn't get the last word, um, and not just that we will live, but that God is going to set things right, and that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of that process, kind of the guarantee of it, and the launching <clears throat> of that power in a way that has created a new reality and a new hope on the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, quick follow-on. <laughs> Anything you want to, yeah. Doctor. And, yes. and um, a possible difference between you and me, and you can tell me about this, not at length, I'm just naming a difference so that the audience doesn't just see us as saying exactly the same thing, which would be fine if it did. But um, for me, the empty tomb is irrelevant. And I gather for you as for Tom Wright, it matters. It matters a great deal, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but while the actual historical fact matters or doesn't matter, you both would affirm essentially the same meaning to the resurrection? Is that a fair? That, that it, it has changed I, for, the world in a very profound yeah. way? Mm. I, I would say that it has changed the world in a profound way, but I'm not sure that... Yeah. For me, the resurrection of Jesus has very little to do with an afterlife for us. I think those are two separate questions. Mm -hmm. I agree with Tom Wright in part that the resurrection of Jesus, to use a phrase that Dom Cross and I have used in print and that Tom has agreed to in a conversation, public conversation, the resurrection means God's, or that the great divine cleanup of the world has begun. That God's vindication of Jesus, which means Jesus is Lord and the rulers of this world are not, is the first fruits of God's intentionality that the world be a very different kind of place. And again, to repeat myself, for me, uh, it almost seems like a trivialization of Easter to link it to our hope for heaven. Hmm. To follow up on this, it, it seems, however, that you both definitely seem to believe that Easter did profoundly change something in the world without in the world, without necessarily a focus on the afterlife at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to talk about something that really is a big concern for a lot of non-Christians, or even for Christians who struggle with their faith, and that is the problem of evil. Now, philosophically, the problem of evil is traditionally defined that if God is all good, and if God is all powerful, mm -hmm. but there's evil in the world, then how is this <clears> possible? Um, I do think there are plenty of philosophical arguments against that, and we don't need to necessarily go down mm -hmm. that road. But I do want to ask you both, within your own, whether it's the metaphorical or what I'll call, John, the more literal, for lack of a better term. It's fine. Um, within, your within the meta-narratives you both subscribe to, how is the problem of evil addressed by Christians today? And what does it mean, what, what does the life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the Christian faith and the Christian walk mean to people who are facing incredible suffering? 
whether it's illness or war or famine or any number of things. A little light ball question for you. <laughs> and how long do we have for this <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, Okay, uh, a quick shot at it, which is as much pastoral as any, you know, the, historically the, the problem gets set out as if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, how can evil exist? And um, I think that both of us would agree that God is all-powerful and good. I, I would. Uh, a, a great deal of evil is mystery. I mean, there's not like a section in there someplace that says, here's the philosophical answer for it. Um, I do think the fact that God values persons who are made to be free, and there is no way that you can have persons who are made to be free without their being able to choose, and if they choose, that includes the power of being able to choose badly and wrongly. And um, pretty much anybody who has kids runs into that, you know, pretty early on. And um, so the fall is a result of that problem. And then our hope lies in God's promise that He will redeem, in, in God's persistent love. And um, part of what is powerful, I, I believe, about Jesus is that He shows us a God who not only cares, he talks about God knowing the hairs on your head, but in Jesus we see God himself suffering. And part of the power of the cross is Jesus himself, I, I, think, I think Bart put it like this, you will know better than me, that, that God would rather be the unblessed God of unblessed people than the blessed God of unblessed people. That he chose to take on suffering and pain himself, and that's part of um, the power of the cross and the wonder of the cross, but then part of the power of the resurrection. Um, and to me, again, I, I think it's a quite, I, I think a robust and quite personal understanding of the resurrection is needed, partly because I think, you know, there's only one Marcus Borg, and that that Marcus Borg exists as a robust person on into eternity would be a real good thing. And um, you don't have to agree with that, but I... <laughs> I, I Thank you. I, <laughs> um, I mean, thank you for saying it'd be a good deal if I could exist forever. I think it'd be a okay. very okay. good thing if you could, and I think, I think the hope for that. I understand that often um, afterlife issues get put in a crude way, and often the gospel has been misunderstood that it's an arrangement to get me to the pleasure factory if I believe the right thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think on that one we would probably have a lot of agreement on where it has been distorted. Um, but I do think that the desire for life as the person that each person is right now um, goes right to the core of what it means to be a person. And part of why the understanding of the resurrection as a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus has such a power to it is it's an expression of God's intent that one day all suffering will be redeemed. Mm -hmm. Couple comments. It would be wonderful if there were an afterlife in which people who have utterly miserable lives here because they're victims of profound injustice or they're born with horrible birth defects or they're murdered or whatever would, would get their lives back. That'd be wonderful. I, I, I don't, I'm an agnostic about whether that happens. An agnostic is one who doesn't know and might be interesting to talk more about the afterlife, but let me go to the question of evil that you raised. 
um, I'm skeptical that, that there is an ontological or metaphysical reality that we might call evil. However, if we think of evil as that which causes unnecessary human suffering, then evil is very real in that sense. And some of that flows out of human free will. We're capable of doing utterly horrible things to each other. And even more than that, it's important, I think, for people in general, Christians in particular, to be aware of what might be called systemic evil. This is sources of human misery built into the structures of society, which includes structures of convention, conventional attitudes that can cause great suffering for people, as well as economic structures that impoverish people, as well as, I don't know, um, conventions of um, unreflective patriotism that justify the worst kinds of things in the name of country and whatnot. Systemic evil is very real, and that's one of the reasons why the New Testament language of principalities and powers is kind of necessary. That language makes the point that when we're dealing with evil, we're dealing with something bigger than any of us as individuals. So does that kind of evil exist? You betcha. And it was precisely, I think, that kind of evil that was responsible for the execution of Jesus. I want to follow up on that, um, and thank you for taking us down this road already, Dr. Ward, because my next question was, what is evil? And so you've, um, you've kind of um, hit on that already. And yeah, so we're done with that. <laughs> well, I, I, do want to give, uh, <laughs> I do want to give Reverend Ortberg the chance to talk about, and not, not just evil in particular, but also sin, because you've hit on the idea of systemic sin, but I'm curious, first of all, Reverend Ortberg, mm -hmm. would you agree in, about systemic sin or evil, but then also, what do you both think about personal Sin. Yep. Um, so, a uh, book written, I don't know, 15 years ago or so by uh, Neil Planiga, who's at Calvin, uh, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Abbreviary of Sin. And it's, uh, I think, a really, really good book on sin. Part of Neil's um, thesis is that you can't understand sin without understanding shalom first. That shalom is the way things are supposed to be a world where people are civil and where truth is spoken and where um, tabloids have stories of moral beauty and courage in them. <laughs> Jerry Springer features interviews with men who secretly enjoy dressing as men. Um, <laughs> um, and when you look at the images in the prophets of the mountains flowing with Chardonnay or whatever, it, it, that's images of shalom, um, physically, socially, emotionally. Uh, and, and that's part of what Jesus means when he talks about kingdom language. So, so then sin, Neil says, is the um, personal, culpable violation of shalom. You know, it, it is when... Um, because I am an agent, because I am a free moral agent, I choose to do that which will violate shalom. And I think that that can happen, I, absolutely can happen systemically. Part of the deal with that is it gets to the nature of the kingdom. Uh, we're almost done? Hmm? Okay, okay, okay. Uh, 
you know, each one of us has dominion. We all have little kingdoms. God says that the whole human race, they have dominion. So the, the dominion, a kingdom, is the range of my effective will, where what I say goes. And I have my kingdom, you have yours, you have yours. Then those kingdoms all intersect. And there's little family kingdoms and little neighborhood kingdoms and national kingdoms. And so evil can get played out in those intersecting kingdoms as well as individually. So yeah, there is both systemic evil and there is individual evil. Last thing I'll say about that one is, uh, there's a great line by T.S. Eliot, and he says, part of the human condition is we're looking for a system so perfect that we don't have to be good. <laughs> and um, there will never be a system that works so well that it spares the individual human the need to grow in goodness. Board? I'd never thought of myself as a little king, and um, I'm actually very uncomfortable with the notion uh, and I'm also very uncomfortable with the language of dominion, um, especially when that language in Genesis 1:26, where it shows up, refers to uh, the way a shepherd relates to his or her sheep. And I say his or her not out of political correctness, but because shepherds were sometimes women in that world. And um, the good shepherd is not necessarily one who strangles the sheep. So I'm uncomfortable with the language of being a little king. In some ways, I think that's what we need to be delivered from. My understanding of sin, briefly, I think it's very helpful to, to distinguish between sin, singular, and sins, plural, and I think that might be built into what you're saying as well. Sins, plural, are the um, harmful acts that we do and so forth, but they flow out of sin, singular, which historically within the Christian tradition has been understood, and these are complementary, not either ors, primarily as estrangement, which is a nice word, separation from that to which we belong. In a state of estrangement from God, we become anxious and self-preoccupied, and out of that self-preoccupation flows our blindness and selfish actions and so forth. And the other classic understanding of sin in the singular is hubris, or pride, which is puffing oneself up beyond appropriate size, whether an individual or a nation. And um, out of that then flows also individual actions of harmful behavior. And I'm a little bit afraid of the little king language because it sounds like, <laughs> sounds like hubris to me. Well, unfortunately, we need to move on. Mm -hmm. um, I've got two of the questions I want to ask before we turn to the audience questions, but I'll, I'll bring the questions here shortly. The first is directly for Reverend Ortberg, and that is to do with faith and science. Uh, Dr. Borg talked about how his um, meta-narrative is not in conflict between, there's not a conflict between faith and science in his meta-narrative. There's a lot of people who may think, particularly here at Stanford, a place that has a very strong science faculty, a very strong mathematics <clears throat> focus perhaps, that there may be a conflict between faith and science. And so what I want to understand is within the evangelical mm -hmm. mindset, is it possible to reconcile the two? And in particular, I, I wonder if your own background, the PhD in clinical psychology, has that informed your understanding of science? Is it even a question we should even be asking? Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about kind of scripture and, and our understanding of the nature of uh, the scriptures. And uh, mine and, and a general evangelical understanding would be that it is both human and the product of people who were, you know, I assume bright people who were able to reflect on and communicate their experience. 
um, and also uh, a product that God was well pleased with, um, that is able to accomplish the purposes that God intends for it to accomplish. And so I think of it as being both a human book um, and uh, a book through which God has revealed himself and his nature and his purposes in a unique way. Um, I do think there's been a lot of misunderstanding, sometimes because some evangelicals have not communicated that or not communicated it well or in ways that it should be, that the Bible was not written, uh, the intent of the Bible was not to answer 21st century questions of science or technology. So that, for example, uh, when you read the book of Genesis, uh, I, I do take the book of Genesis, I, I read it literally in the sense of, I want to know what was the literal meaning intended by the author of the book of Genesis. But and the when, literal meaning could have been metaphorical. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, okay. when Jesus okay. says, I'm a door, you yep. know, he doesn't mean yep. he's got hinges. Yep. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, when you look at the poetry of the first chapter in Genesis, mm -hmm. and the sun doesn't show up until the fourth day, mm -hmm. well, everybody knows that literally or scientifically, you don't have a day or a night without the sun. Mm -hmm. So I think the writer is communicating to us, you know, the intent of the author of Genesis is not to give a scientific account for when the sun came along. It was at that time the sun was often worshipped, and the writer wants people to know the sun is not to be worshipped. The sun is part of creation, not to be, it's not the creator. And so I think generally um, science ought to be explored, science always ought to be explored fully and without reservation, and that the scriptures properly understood in terms of their intent from an evangelical perspective, um, you know, that's a process that is fully compatible with the process of science. Mm -hmm. A very quick response. Okay. Between reductionistic science and all forms of religion, there is a sharp conflict. Yeah. Between biblical literalism and all forms of legitimate science, there is a sharp conflict. But if you let go of um, biblical literalism, and I appreciate your comment that sometimes the literal meaning of a biblical passage is its metaphorical meaning. It's important. It's like, what's the literal meaning of a poem? The literal meaning of a poem is its poetic meaning. Okay. Right. So, okay. Um, so, but between, um, let's say, and much of Christian biblical literalism, by the way, is a concern with factuality. You can almost speak of biblical factualism. That's where the conflict between some Christians and evolution comes from, you know, that they hear the Genesis story of creation as if it's a literally factual account and thus feel that loyalty to Scripture means they have to reject the notion of evolution. And even the conflict between intelligent design and evolution is a misplaced conflict. Why couldn't you have intelligent evolution, you know? so. I think the conflicts arise when science absolutizes itself or when Christians absolutize their own scriptures. Thank you, gentlemen. So our first question from the audience was actually the next question I had hoped to ask mm. too. So mm. proof that great minds think alike. And um, How do we know that it actually came from the audience and yeah. it's not just you <laughs> sneaking in your own question? So you don't, you know, good, good. you don't. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the question of providence and, and here's how it's phrased. Um, does God answer prayer in a more than merely therapeutic way? In other words,
does God intervene in this world? I know this will sound shifty as all get out. <laughs> I don't for a moment believe in intervention, but I think God answers prayer. Do you want to elaborate? I don't think intervention is the explanation. I think once you start talking about intervention, you have the impossible task of accounting for the non-interventions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think God answers prayer, and I would use the language of intervention. I, I think that God um, is in his creation and watches over his creation, but is also a personal being separate from his creation mm -hmm. and is able to interact with people um, and to intervene in affairs. Um, and given that I think he's omniscient, you know, I, I think he's smart enough to figure out when that would be in. I would not know when those times are. Do you think God has to make decisions? We think always things through. That's, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> mocking. No, I'm I, just wondering what you mean. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 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 All of our language for God involves either analogy or or the negative. You know, we're yeah. always saying either yeah. he's like this or he's not like this. So um, it's certainly not a decision where God is anxious about what he's going to have for dinner in the way that I might be or you yeah. might be. But, but, but the, I do think that the Bible... God decide I do, to answer prayers? I mean, like, oh, I'll answer that one. I, I think that God responds to prayer. Okay. I think that God always hears prayer um, and that God responds to prayer and sometimes his responses to prayer take the form of an intervention or an action on the part of God which would not have happened had there not been prayer. Very much like if you and I are in a relationship, there may be times when I take an action because you have spoken to me that I would not have taken mm -hmm. had you not spoken to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Following up on that, how do you both envision vocation? Clearly you have chosen mm -hmm. vocations, one mm -hmm. as a pastor, one as a professor, that are in service to the church. But if mm -hmm. God does not intervene or if there's no providence, or even if there is, <laughs> to what extent, how does one know one's vocation? And do all human beings have a vocation? Well, I mean, mm -hmm. quick run at that one. In terms of calling, uh, when I think about biblical language around calling, um, there's a calling to be, you know, so that's a part of vocation, if you want to use calling language. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. you are called to be the best version of Eric that you can because that's who God created you to be. Mm -hmm. And all of us are called to that. And there's a calling to belong. I don't think it's a calling to belong to the community of Jesus, a calling to belong to the church. That's why we hunger for intimacy and love. And then a calling to do certain things. And that gets to the vocational aspects. Now, whether or not that means that everybody has a particular job that they're supposed to have or not to take or so, I mean, you're trying to think mm -hmm. through those right, kinds of things right. in your life right now. Um, I think even as I look at my kids, my primary heart for my children is that they grow up to become really, really good people. And part of what that means for them is, I don't always say to them, wear these clothes, date this person, take this job, tempting though that might be. Because since my primary goal is the kind of person they will become, I recognize they cannot grow in their character without making choices. So sometimes my will for them is, I want you to choose. 
And I think in the same way, God's will for us is not simply that we perform certain actions or even hold certain jobs. His primary will for us is that we become certain kinds of persons. And by nature, that means that often, God's will for us will be that we choose. Mm -hmm. I, I, I like what you've said very much. And let me supplement it, not disagree at all, but supplement it with my two favorite statements about calling and vocation. Superficially, they sound like they contradict each other, but they don't. One is from Frederick Buechner, who said, where the world's need and your great joy come together, that is your vocation. And then the other one is from Howard Thurman, and it starts off sounding like it's in disagreement with Buechner. Howard Thurman says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I like that. There's a question that I think we may be able to answer very quickly, and I'm, I'm hoping it might be a point for agreement for you two, but let's see. What's more important? If I had to make a choice, the words of the Bible or the nature of Jesus? I'm not sure about what is meant by the nature of Jesus. Let me just put it this way, though. Christians throughout history have spoken of two primary sources of revelation, the Bible and Jesus. The Bible is the Word of God in human words. Jesus is the Word of God embodied in a human life. And historically, Christians have said, Jesus is the decisive revelation of God. So whenever Jesus and the Bible conflict, as they sometimes do, go with Jesus. Or colloquially, Jesus trumps the Bible. Um, I'm does, not, Trump does not mean trash. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Donald will be glad to hear that. <laughs> right, um, right, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, I'd have to rethink my statement. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not sure that I get the question, but I would say that uh, my understanding is that God has revealed himself uh, supremely and uniquely in Jesus, that if you want to know what God is like, then you look to Jesus to know, that the authoritative teaching about God comes from Jesus. Um, I would disagree about the notion of Jesus and the Bible contradicting one another. I think that the... I don't mean all the time, but sometimes they do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. yeah. yeah. No, I, 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 mm -hmm. I, I got gotcha. you. Mm -hmm. um, so I would disagree with that part of it, and I think that um, the Bible is where we learn, the primary place where we learn about Jesus. And so they go together, and mm -hmm. they're, they're not in conflict or in tension. Okay. But, but Jesus is it. So, excellent. How do your respective traditions approach our... Pl our planet's environmental crisis. Hmm. I'll begin here. Um, neither the Bible nor Jesus say much about this, and that's because there was no crisis of the environment in the ancient world. There are some things that you can get from Scripture and Jesus that are relevant, like the question, to whom does the earth belong? Mm -hmm. 
And the answer of the psalmist is clear. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And we as human beings have often treated the earth as if it belonged to us in particular, to some of us more than others of us, and of course to us as a species more than to the other species of the world. So you, you can get some things about an environmental ethic from sort of the theological foundations of the Bible. And then to move on to how, for want of a better term, uh, progressive Christians see this issue. And some evangelicals do too, so I'm not doing that contrast thing all the time. Uh, most of us um, see the care of creation as an imperative need for both the pragmatic reasons of the human future as well as because of this affirmation that God loves not just us, but God loves the world, the created world, and that the Christian life is not about leaving this world to get to another one and to hell with this world, okay? But it's about the cherishing of this creation. Um, loose means, uh an ethicist always used to say that redemption is always the redemption of creation. And, um, you know, that's true when it comes to people as created beings, but also of the earth as God's creation. And I think evangelicals have not always articulated this, although I think it's being written about a lot more now. Mm -hmm. But the notion of the fact that the earth actually belongs to God, if it's, you know, followed logically means it ought to be like, if you lend me something that's really valuable and I know that I'm going to be giving it back to you, I would take really good care of it, especially if I care about you and I know that it matters to you. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. it ought to flow out of an evangelical form of the faith. Mm -hmm. Very good. We're going to ask about two more questions. We have time for about two more. Um, but this one might take a little while, so I hope you'll have a chance to work through this. Okay. How do each of you understand the comparison of Jesus with a sacrificial lamb? I'll repeat that once more, just so the audience can hear correctly. Yep. How do each of you understand the comparison of Jesus with a sacrificial lamb? You know, I... Go ahead. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes back to the history or the framework of his story with Israel, where there is this sense inside of us all um, that something is wrong. There is something wrong inside of me. There is something wrong inside of the people I love. There is this bentness or this brokenness that is about sin um, and that it needs to be set right. And um, that it is something that if there is a God who is a holy and just God, then the notion of sin is not okay with him. And that's something that, you know, if I stop and think about it, uh, the notion that God is a just God, um, that God cares about justice. I mean, even at a, even at a baseball game, um, we care if justice gets violated. We have a saying, if the umpire misses a call, what's everybody say? <laughs> Kill the umpire. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like, <laughs> all right, all right. Not chastise right. the umpire. Yeah. You come Send from a different him for remedial education. <laughs> Kill the umpire. At least, I, I come from Chicago, so that's what they say in Chicago. Okay, but, okay, okay. So, so we all recognize that we want justice. What we have a hard time recognizing is what happens when justice comes my way, what happens when justice comes your way. And it's very interesting to me, having uh, done work in the field of psychology, 
one of the primary areas that's going on in social psychology right now uh, in fields like the self-serving bias. Widespread research that says we all tend to look at our lives and overemphasize how good we have done, over-exaggerate our contributions to goodness, under-report our failures. This is true even among faculties. Over 90% of all faculty members in one study said that they're above average faculty members. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Now you get into tenure, you start thinking about how does that play itself out? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's this recognize, there's this, there's this bentness, brokenness, wrongness. God, if he's any kind of a God, must be a just God. And so there is something between us and that God that is wrong and that needs to be set right. And in the history of Israel, the sacrificial system was a way of expressing that sense in the human race, that there is a gap, there is a problem, there is a distance between us and God. And um, it needs to be set right. It needs to be atoned for. And it was kind of a picture of that atonement process. So that when Jesus came and lived and then was crucified on the cross and had lived a life of sacrificial love and his followers were reflecting on that, they came to understand that one of the things happening on the cross was that Jesus had taken on a role like a sacrificial lamb, that the sins of the whole human race, including mine, had been in some deep way placed on him, taken on by him, so that the price of human sin could be paid, so that atonement could be made, so that we could know that things were set right between us and God. And that to, to respond to that, to say, um, God, I want to know your forgiveness and your cleansing um, as a gift of grace that was expressed most deeply by Christ in his death on the cross is the invitation to the human race. Is this parable or is this literal? Well, I believe that Jesus literally died and that yes. when he died, he actually took on himself our sin. Okay. Let me just comment that the theology that you've just described sees God as a God of punitive justice by which I mean God must punish sin. And otherwise it looks like God is easy on sin or something like that. And Jesus receives the punishment that we all deserve. I think that's the God of punitive justice. One might also raise questions, how just is that? but let me move to the language of sacrifice. I want to suggest to all of you that sacrifice in itself does not mean substitutionary sacrifice. Substitutionary sacrifice is the language that Jesus died in our place. He was a substitute for us. It uses the language or the imagery of payment payment had to be made, and so forth. Um, I can work that out as a parable of God's love, but the moment I start to take that semi-literally or literally as something that God required, I just can't believe it. 
You could promise me heaven decorated to my taste or Bill Gates's billions, and I might say, I believe, I believe. But I simply cannot believe that that's the way God is. No human parent requires that kind of thing if their child does something wrong. Now, having said that, so I'm, I'm very much against the notion of substitutionary sacrifice. I would even argue it's not biblical. Nobody within the sacrificial system of ancient Israel thought, uh, I deserve to be punished, but God will take it out on the goat. You know? Now, the language of sacrifice separated from substitution works in some way. The word sacrifice means to make something sacred by offering it up to God. And so a lamb is made sacred by offering it up to God and it comes back to the people as meal. Uh, Martin Luther King made his life sacred by offering it up to God. Oscar Romero did the same thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer did the same thing. We can speak of their lives as sacrifices out of their loyalty to God. In that sense, I'm willing to speak of the death of Jesus as a sacrifice. He made his life sacred by being willing to take the consequences of his passion for God and the kingdom of God. But my own sense is that the language of substitutionary sacrifice, I'll just say for me it doesn't work. So. I would love to give you the chance to respond, and I'd love to ask another question, but alas, we don't have time. Um, I am, however, going to ask one more question, which I'm not going to let you answer, but just for you to think about, and perhaps for our audience to think about in the discussion that we'll have afterward, and that is, I am curious to know what evangelism looks like in the modern day in both of your meta-narratives. So maybe someday we'll have the chance to discuss that Why are further. you asking us that if we can't answer? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But, but I'm hoping the audience might talk <clears throat> to you afterward. Um, so I have a few announcements, but before I make announcements, please stay seated. But first of all, can we please give our speakers a round of applause for coming to see you? Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.